Good morning. I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to uh, the New Testament letter of Philippians. This is Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, and we'll be looking at chapter 4 for just a few moments together today. Philippians chapter 4. And as we uh, arrive at that location, let me ask you if you would to uh, join me in prayer. Lord, our uh, hearts and spirits are full. We are full of thanks to you. We are full of wonder. We are full of hoping. We are full of anticipating. We are full of waiting. And Lord, as we come here today, we are also full sometimes of sadness, of sorrow, of grieving, of confusion, of anger. Lord, for all of the things that we are full of, you have room. Your hands are large, your embrace is wide, and you welcome us. And so we come uh, to this place where we know you are. We ask that you would help us to not only know your presence, that we would not only feel it in our bones, but that we would hear your voice. You've promised that your sheep recognize your voice uh, out of all of the other voices that are calling over all of the other noise in the world. We can hear you. So, Lord, in this place, in this time, with these people, help us to hear you. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So our text today comes out of Philippians 4. I am going to actually begin at verse 1, just to add a few verses beyond what is listed in your bulletin. Dear brothers and sisters, I love you and I long to see you, for you are my joy and the reward for my work. So please stay true to the Lord. Other translations say stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. And now I want to plead with those two women, Euodia and Syntyche, please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. And I ask you, my true teammate, to help these women, for they worked hard with me in telling others the good news, and they worked with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are written in the book of life. Always be full of joy in the Lord. And I say it again, rejoice. Let's everyone see that you are considerate in all that you do. Remember, the Lord is coming soon. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all that he has done. And if you do this, you will experience God's peace, which is far more wonderful than the human mind can understand. And his peace will guard your hearts and your minds as you live in Christ Jesus. We'll ask God to bless this reading, his holy and inspired word. Amen. So this is the season of Advent, and during Advent, we traditionally focus together on a series of themes, topics, ideas that are big ideas. They are the big themes. They are the big message of the Bible. And so during the season of Advent, in this time of waiting, in this time of anticipating, in this time of leaning forward, 
uh, we light candles. Uh, we light candles that remind us about the big theme of peace. Uh, we are reminded that God's shalom is coming. And in a real sense, we live in the midst of God's shalom already. Uh, we light a candle of hope. And we're reminded that we live as people of hope and not despair. We live as people of victory and not defeat. Today we light the candle of joy, and next week we light the candle of love. Peace, hope, joy, love. These are the big themes of our shared story. This is who we are. In this Advent season, the invitation for us is to live our lives in the reflection of the light of those words. To live our lives in the reflection of those promises and those possibilities. And to, to let that in until it shapes us, changes us. And as we live our lives in the light of those great themes from the Bible, uh, we also, as we live reflectively, want to think about how it is that we then become a reflection of those realities into our culture. That our lives tell the story of peace. And that our lives reinforce the possibility of hope. And that our lives become a reflection of joy that our lives become a place of love. We want to live a reflective life in this Advent season. And this week, as we think about experiencing and reflecting joy, uh, we want to begin, like we did last week, with a short video uh, just to bring us to a place of understanding what we're talking about when we're talking about joy. So listen to the story.
So this theme of joy just runs all the way through the text of Scripture. It's all over the Bible. And it is a huge part of who we're called to be. In our text today, you can't talk about joy without looking at uh, the letter of Philippians. In our text today, there's this amazing commandment. Uh, It's not just an invitation to joy, it's a command to joy. And Paul says, uh, be joyful, rejoice. And then as if you didn't hear it the first time, he said, and again, I'll say it, rejoice, rejoice, be joyful. It's a question. Um, It's one thing to know some words about joy. It's one thing to know some theology about joy. It's one thing to know where you can go to verses about joy. The question uh, for our time today is, are you a joyful person? Uh, Do your friends describe you as a person of joy? Does your family see you as a joyful person? Do your neighbors and coworkers say, uh, when I think of Mike, think of joy? Are you a joyful person? Uh, The news may not be so good on that front. As you uh, look at all sorts of research uh, from all sorts of populations across our country, uh, the news is that, for the most part, Americans are not joyful people. In fact, one researcher drew the conclusion that America is the most depressed nation in the world. Uh, We're not happy with our jobs, we're not happy with our friends, we're not happy in our marriages, we're not happy with the things that we have. And it turns out that the more we seem to pursue happiness, the less of it we have. Instead, what story after story and research after research have shown us is that we are an anxious people, we're angry, we're depressed, we're defeated, we're pessimistic, we're impatient, we're greedy, almost anything but joyful, at least not in any lasting, enduring, persisting sort of way. As North Americans living here in this nation, uh, it's a challenge for us to live in light of joy within us. And the church isn't much better. The possibility of reflecting that joy to the world seems to be a challenge as well. Not only am I not characterized as a joyful person, but together, the body of Christ, the presence of Jesus in the world isn't characterized as a joyful person. If you ask people uh, what it is they think of when they think about Christians, uh, joyful people is not at the top of the list. Uh, When you ask people what they think of when they think about Christians, uh, instead what you get is something like they're judging, they're quarreling, why would I want to be a part of that? I have enough problems and fights and divisions in my life without adding one more layer of it in my life. They're uptight. They're almost anything but joyful. And then if I can get even more personal, this congregation. uh, This is a great congregation. Uh, I resonate with Paul when he says, I want to be with you and I love you. You are my joy. And I feel that so deeply. It's a joy to be your pastor. And what's also true is that this congregation isn't always described as joyful. Now, sometimes the things that we get described as uh, are really, really good things. Uh, In our community, we're known as an intellectual congregation. Uh, We're known as a hardworking group. Uh, We're helpful. We're serious. And maybe on 
not-so-hot days. We're kind of complaining, maybe a little burned out, a little tired, a little worn down. We're wondering uh, if anybody else would do the job that we're doing. And sometimes on really not-so-good days, we get a little bit demanding, a little ornery. Are you joyful, church? Are you able to experience joy, live your life in the light of that joy? Are you reflecting joy to the world? Maybe you see yourself in that. So this morning, uh, in our text, Paul tells a story, a very personal story at the conclusion of this short little letter to the church in Philippi. And he offers us this fascinating comparison between somebody who has joy, somebody who's living in the light of joy, somebody who's reflecting joy, and somebody who's lost it. The situation, at least part of the situation that Paul is writing to in this church in Philippi, is that at least two women have lost their joy. Uh, Euodia and Syntyche are having a quarrel. Uh, They're having a disagreement. There is some conflict, maybe even some painful division. Let me be really, really clear. Paul isn't worried about differences. Nowhere do you ever see Paul say, if you have differences, if you're different from somebody else, you're going to lose your joy. He never, ever, ever says that. In fact, he says, in order to have joy, you have to have all of the members of the body. You have to have all of the perspectives. You have to have everybody in the room, rich and poor, male and female, slave, and you know everybody is a part. Of it. It's not the differences that he's worried about. It's the division. And so he says, this division is robbing you this argument, this conflict uh, is getting in the way of your joy. And the conflict, do you ever notice how that happens? The conflict or the division or the, 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 the bickering between two people doesn't just stay between two people, but uh, uh, you almost get the impression that there are some concentric rings of influence that are coming out from that space. And some other members of this little congregation in Philippi are starting to feel the impact of that conflict. And so in verse 1, he has to say, stand firm, stand firm, stand firm, don't be shaken. The joy is leaking from this congregation that Paul is writing to. And on the other hand, Paul uh, is a person of tremendous joy. Uh, In this uh, little letter in particular, four little chapters, the word joy or rejoice appears in chapter 1, verse 4, 18, 25, chapter 2, verse 2, 17, 18, 28, 29, chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1, 4, and 10, over and over and over again, he's talking about joy or rejoicing. Now, uh, it's too much to say that joy is the theme or the topic of this letter because nowhere does Paul treat it as a subject, nowhere does he address it as a theme. But because it permeates his message, we could say that joy is the spirit of this little book. Joy is the spirit of Philippians. And the apostle uh, sang songs with his partner Silas in a Philippian jail. And now he's in another prison cell, writing back to the place of his previous imprisonment and encouraging them to live in joy. Now, Roman imprisonment... um, was a significant challenge. Uh, Before you were taken into your cell, you would be stripped naked, you would be flogged, your skin uh, would be cut and torn and bloody. 
your clothes would be returned to you in the condition that uh, they were in. Uh, it was humiliating. It was painful. It was bloody. Uh, the bleeding wounds were untreated in the filth of the prison. You were strapped in painful leg irons and wrist irons, heavy chains chafing against your skin. Most of the cells were dark, uh, especially the internal cells. There would be no uh, light source available. They would be unbearably cold, be lack of water, be cramped. There would be a, uh, a stench because of the unsanitary conditions. Um, sleep would be difficult, and being awake would be miserable. Rejoice, he says. Rejoice again, he says. His life is in danger. He's in absolute misery. And he's living in joy. And what's the difference? How is it possible for two people to let their joy leak away in the midst of petty disagreements and differences and conflicts and, and another can stand firm in joy? to know the reality of joy that just doesn't seem to go away. What is the difference? So this morning, here you go, three things. One thing that we need to know that Paul knows, and two things that we can do that Paul does that will allow us to live in joy and reflect that joy in the world. First of all, something we need to know. That is the big picture Paul says, you've got, to, you've got to understand the big picture. You've got to understand the big story that's happening here. Uh, Paul says in verse 1, stand firm in the Lord. And uh, uh, before that, at the very beginning of verse 1, in the original language of chapter 4, the word therefore is there. And when therefore is there, uh, it's pointing to what just came before it. And it's connecting what just came before it to what he's saying now. And what he's saying is, uh, there's this description of what it means to stand firm in the Lord. This is what it looks like. Uh, look at the uh, very end of chapter 3. He says in verse 20, But we are citizens of heaven, where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. He will take these weak mortal bodies of ours and change them into glorious bodies like his own, using the same mighty power that he will use to conquer everything everywhere. It sounds a lot like Advent, doesn't it? That's our Advent text. Uh, we are waiting. We are eagerly waiting. We are waiting to see the return of Jesus. We are eagerly waiting, and we are citizens of heaven. And here's what Paul knows, that when you have that big picture, when you understand that big story, when you understand where you stand in the story, citizens of heaven, eagerly awaiting ones, uh, when you understand that, you're, you're going to have joy. Uh, you're, you're, you're going to hold on to your joy. And on the other hand, if you put your happiness or your source of joy in anything or anyone else, you're going to lose it. You'll lose it. It'll, it. You'll always, always lose it. Look at verse 19, one uh, of chapter 3. Uh, he's talking about those who haven't stood firm in Jesus, who are not citizens of heaven, who are not the eagerly awaiting ones. And he says their future is eternal destruction. Their God is their appetite. Uh, they brag about shameful things, and all they think about is life here on this earth. All, all they think about, their hope, their joy, their, their, their ground, everything is here. It's a smaller story. It's a finite story. It's not a cosmic story. It's not God's story. 
There's no connection to heavenly citizenship. All they think about. And what he says is this. He knows it. He knows instinctively that when we look out, right, we see everything changing. The things in this world, uh, the things that I put my hope in, the things that bring me happiness, the things that bring me joy, it, it changes. It goes away. It fades. It's even the best marriage, the best marriage that you have, in the best marriage, no matter how good your marriage is, somebody will die, and it ends. Uh, no matter no matter how uh, good looking you are, no matter how strong you are, no matter how long you work out every week, eventually your body will give out. <laughs> I was getting I got a haircut this past week, sitting in the barber chair. And I had that, you know, that smock over me, and I was looking down at my lap, and all of a sudden these great big huge chunks of gray hair started falling on my lap. And I looked around and wondered who was standing behind me, playing, you know, playing a, you know, some old man was back there putting his hair in my lap. Uh, no matter how strong you are, it goes away. It fails. No matter how wonderful your group of friends, uh, they change, or they move, or they die. In this world, nothing lasts. If your appetite is in this world, if your appetite is for nothing but what is in this world, then all you will have is destruction. There's no love that lasts, no joy that lasts, no strength that lasts, nothing that lasts. And yet, somehow, deep down inside, we know that doesn't feel right. Somehow, deep down inside, we know that we're, we're designed, we're built, we long for something that does last. We're, we're designed for something that will stand, that won't fade away, that isn't destruction. We know that we, we, that we want that, we, we desire that, we know that there's a place like that. And what Paul is saying is saying, listen, citizens of heaven, eagerly awaiting ones, there is a place like that. There's a place. And it's in the presence of a Jesus He's making everything new. And when you're in the presence of a Jesus who's making, you know what that means? That means that in the presence of the King of Kings, in the heavenly kingdom of which you are a citizen, not only does fading and weakening and losing and destruction not enter into the picture, not only does it not fade away, not only does it not even stay the same, but all of those things just get better and better and better and better. You're changed from one degree of glory to the next degree of glory to the next degree of glory. Your strength and your relationships and your love and your joy, however good it is, the first moment you step into the kingdom, the next second it's three times better, and the next second it's ten times better, and the next second it's fifteen. It just gets better and better and better and newer and fresher and stronger. Everything that is weak and mortal and fleeting and fading is gone. There is a place like that. Citizens of heaven, eagerly awaiting ones. Remember where you're from. Remember where you're going. And he says, sisters, sisters, <laughs> remember who you are. Remember where you stand. Remember there's a Jesus who's making all things new. Remember there's a throne. And you remember what Jesus did so that you could be a part of that. And if your minds are filled with that, if your heart is filled with that, 
And how could there be this division between you? How could there be this petty arguing? How could there be this conflict? How could it be possible that you would entertain that? It's possible when you don't see the big picture. It's possible when you don't see the whole story. The only possible way you could be so upset with each other and let your joy leak away is that you're not seeing where you stand. In verse 3 then he, of chapter 4, he turns us back to the big picture and he says, remember that your, book, that your name is written in the book of life. Remember that your book is written in the name of life. No matter what happens, no matter where you are, no matter what's happening, no matter who you're in, remember that your name is written in the book of life. So how does standing firm in that big picture of heavenly citizenship, that eagerly awaiting moment for the return of Jesus, how does that lead to joy? Uh, that leads us to the thing we can do, the first thing that we can do. Uh, look at verse 5 again of chapter 4. It says, let everyone see that you are considerate in all that you do. Uh, now, I'm sorry, this isn't meant to be tricky, but there's a, there's a word in the original language that stands behind that phrase, be considerate. Uh, and that word, uh, in other translations and other places, is sometimes uh, translated, be moderate. Have you ever seen that, maybe in the King James or the New King James? Be moderate in all that you do. Practice moderation. And what we're saying is that uh, Paul is saying, not only do you have to remember the big picture, but in light of that big picture, practice moderation. Uh, John Calvin in his commentary on this text, for the Reformed people here who want to know if this is a newfangled thing that Derider is pulling on us, uh, this is Calvin speaking to you, friends. Uh, this is the meaning, he says, that I rather prefer. The word is a term that is made use of by the Greeks themselves to denote moderation of spirit, uh, when they were not easily moved by injuries, and when we are not easily annoyed by adversity. Calvin. Moderation. Practice holy moderation. So what does that look like? Paul says, uh, rejoice, rejoice. But then right above that, he says, um, rejoice. Your names are written in the book of life. Your, 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 your uh, names are written in heaven. Uh, it's fascinating to me. If you think about places where the book of uh, life, the book of heaven, is talked about in Scripture, there's only a very, very few places. Book of Revelation a little bit. And there's this wonderful story in Luke chapter 10. Uh, maybe you remember the story. Uh, Jesus is with his disciples, and he sends them out to do some uh, work, to preach and to uh, minister and to care for people. The disciples go back, and they come back to Jesus, and he says, all right, how did it go, guys? What did you learn? What happened? And what do they say? They said, holy smokes, it was amazing. Uh, we cast out demons. Demons uh, uh, saw us coming and fled. We cast out demons. And you remember what Jesus says to them? He says, good for you. I'm glad that you saw that. I'm glad that you could see the power. I'm glad that you had that victory. I'm glad that you had that success. I'm glad that you saw the demons flee. But he says, don't, don't rejoice about that. Don't rejoice about that. Rejoice that your name is written in the book of life. That's where your joy is. He says, practice moderation. Here's what he means is, I'm glad that you had success today. Tomorrow you might find a demon that you can't throw out. And that's exactly what happens, isn't it? Uh, you, might, you might find a, 
a demon that you can't drive. So, so don't let that be the factor that determines your joy. You have to decenter that a little bit. Stop rejoicing in your circumstances. That's not the main thing. The main thing is that your name is written in heaven. Uh, the Bible gives us a picture of that, right? The Bible says that in the Old Testament, the names of each of the tribes of Israel were written on the breastplate of the, the high priest when he went into the Holy of Holies before the Lord. Uh, and we're told that Jesus Christ is our high priest. And so when Jesus comes into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of his Father, your name is written over his heart. It's like one of those little sticky name tags, right, when you're a kid and you put somebody else's name on. Your name is right there. The Father sees Jesus with your name. The Father in that holy place, sitting on his throne, sees you with all of the beauty of Jesus. He looks at you. He says, I love you. You're mine forever and ever. There's nothing that is mine that isn't yours. And what Jesus is saying, what Paul is saying, is that the reason that you can't deal with circumstances, the reason you lose joy, is that because you've forgotten where your name is. You've forgotten where you stand. You've forgotten who you are. You've forgotten what Jesus has done as your Savior. Something else has taken the center. Uh, John Newton put it this way. He says, if you understand the grace of God, if you understand where your name is written, it makes the worst times bearable, and it makes the best times leavable. Uh, you don't understand holy moderation until the grace of God makes the best times bearable and your worst times leavable. Uh, Paul says a very similar thing. He says, Christians weep as though they weep not, and they rejoice as though they rejoice not. That means this. A Christian weeps. A Christian says, I'm sad. I'm sorrowful. This is bad. This is tragic. This is heavy and awful. But it's not the main thing. It doesn't go to my core. It's not who I am. It doesn't, I can only get so sad. It's moderated. And when good things happen, right? When a good thing happens, when there's a promotion, when there's a success, when there's a victory, a Christian says, in my heart, he says, I'm happy, I'm excited, this is wonderful, I celebrate, this is a really good thing. But this isn't the best thing. This isn't the greatest thing. My joy is moderated. Here's the practice. You want to be people of joy. Notice what it is that gives you joy. Notice what it is that, that gives you happiness. Notice what it is that stirs you and lifts you. And joy about a new job, joy about a new car, vacation, wedding day, a clean MRI, basketball game. What is it that gives you joy? Where is your joy? What does it look like to moderate that? To say these are good things. These are things worth celebrating. These are things that are that are uh, that are that should make me happy. But these things only make me so happy. There's a, there's a moderation of joy that come from anything besides the story at the center. And on the other hand, what is it that upsets you? What is it that robs you of joy? What do you argue about? What do you complain about? What do you worry about? What are you angry about? What is it that robs you of your joy? Notice those things. And they can be real. They can be powerful. They can be genuine. Feel angry. Feel upset. Feel annoyed. 
and recognize that that's not who you are. It doesn't defeat you. Jesus is saying you have to decenter, decenter, move out of the center. The fact that the demons came out today, the fact that you won today, the fact that you had success today, the fact that you had a victory today, decenter that. Today you were successful. Wonderful. Tomorrow you might not be. Don't rejoice in those things. Don't get defined either by success or failure. But rejoice instead that your names are written in the book of heaven. So, Paul knows the big picture. He knows the story he stands in. He knows that there's a place, there's a kingdom. He's eagerly awaiting the presence of his Jesus. Paul practices moderation. He's not defined by his success. He's not defeated by his failure. His joy comes from the fact that his name is presented in the heavenly place over the heart of Jesus before the Father. And then thirdly, Paul says, pray. Want to have joy? Uh, Pray. Uh, You find yourself getting worried. You find yourself getting worked up. You find yourself getting anxious. You find yourself... Uh, going sideways, pray. And then he says this. He doesn't say just pray. Uh, he says, tell God what you're thinking about. Tell God what you need. He says, do it with thanks. The prayer that Paul is talking about here is a prayer of thanksgiving. It's a prayer of thankfulness. He says, uh, if you want to be a person of joy, not only do you practice moderation, but you practice thanks. Practice thanksgiving. And so somebody says, well, wait a minute. I'm asking God for something that I need, and I'm thanking him for it before I even see if he answers my prayer. How is that possible? Doesn't that just set me up for more discouragement and more defeat? Thank you, God, for my wonderful answer to prayer, and it never happens. Isn't that a step in the wrong direction? And you're, now you're getting to the point. Now you're getting to the point because prayer was never designed or intended to be about changing God's mind Prayer is designed and intended to change our perspective. It changes our heart. We, it's prayer is making our heart available to God for God to change who we are. And so when I come to God uh, upset, anxious, nervous, asking and thanking for his answer, I'm thanking him for all of the possible answers that he could provide. All of the possible outcomes. I'm thanking him for that. So how do I do that? How do I do that? Is that, uh, um, is that just playing games? Is it possible? He says this. Look, every time, every time you come to God in thankful prayer, every time you're suffering, every time something's going on that's robbing you of joy, uh, see that through the cross. See that through the cross. Here's what I mean. In order to be a person of thanks, see that through the cross. Uh, Do you remember the story of the cross? When Jesus is on the cross, what do all of his disciples do? What do all of his friends do? What do they do? Run away. They're not there. Jesus is on the cross, and everybody runs away. Why do they run away? Ever hard on them? For running away, right? Did you ever say, what fools, what losers, how weak, how pathetic. They all ran away from Jesus. Why did they run away? They ran away because they saw Jesus on a cross. Uh, and they couldn't see 
how it was that God could bring anything good out of that situation. Uh, the cross uh, is the depth of shame. It's the depth of defeat. The cross is the end of hope. And the disciples saw Jesus on that cross, and they said, we don't see how God could possibly do anything with this. We're done. When I face my situation, when I face the thing that makes me anxious, when I face the thing that I'm afraid of, when I'm facing the thing that I'm asking God for and I'm doing it with thanks, I'm, what I'm saying is I want to do this as a Christian. What that means is I'm going to stand before the cross, the, the, the place not of defeat, not of shame, not of ending, but the one moment, the one place in the, the history of the universe that, that most clearly maximizes God's power and God's grace and God's victory. The disciples couldn't see it and they ran away. They couldn't see how God was doing anything redemptive in that moment. They couldn't see it. When we pray with thanksgiving, we're saying, God, I'm standing in front of this and I don't see how you can do anything with this moment. It looks like an end. It looks like defeat. It looks like shame. But I know the cross. And I know in that cross was victory and hope and grace and life. And I believe in this moment that I'm facing, if I don't run away, if I stand here and give you thanks, if I worship you, I'll see what that is. And Paul says, if you do that, you'll have joy. In a prison cell, beaten, whipped, bloody, hungry, thirsty, cold. How do you have joy? Paul says, well, <laughs> you have to remember where you stand. You have to remember the big picture. You think I'm a prisoner, but I belong to a king. And I'm eagerly awaiting his return. You might think that I'm a prisoner, but these defeats, this pain, this fear, this lonely isolation, it's bad, it hurts, it grieves, but it doesn't define who I am. There's a, it can only go so deep. And I'm giving thanks to God. I'm seeing this moment through the cross. When I know that God is at work, I live with joy. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we do thank you for this glimpse into the life of a early congregation made up of people just like we are, trying to live their lives and do their jobs and have relationships and having disagreements, losing loved ones and celebrating marriages and new births and all of the things that happen. And so, Lord, let this word come to, come to us across the centuries as we also seek to be people who are joyful and celebrating, laughing,
because we belong to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.